That's debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. Hello and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, welcome to That's Debatable. Uh, to new and returning listeners, uh, the podcast of the Free Speech Union. Tom, how's it going? All good. Uh, it, we're well into the Christmas period now. We've had so many parties. Uh, I had a little bit of light relief on Friday night. I had a 40th birthday party, which was still a question of going out and a question of meeting people. Uh, but it was uh, for a birthday rather than uh, just for Christmas, so that was a that was, that was a, it was quite fun actually. But interestingly, one of the people I had dinner with was Dennis Kavanagh, who is a director of the Gay Men's Network, and he has written an interesting piece in Spiked this week, and was actually also on the Free Speech Nation last night, um, talking about Kemi Badenoch standing up in Parliament uh, and explaining that the uh, the Tavistock uh, uh, clinic was effectively. Um, Transing away the gay is the phrase that was used in in Parliament. And uh, what I love about the article that Dennis Kavanagh wrote is at the end he makes the point that the no debate issue that's that's come to the fore since Stonewall in 2015, 2016 switched to the sort of trans ideology. Uh, they also said there shall be no debate about this. Uh, what he said was that uh, effectively Kemi has now eliminated or, or at least um, taken the sting out of the tail of the no debate mantra. And I really hope, I really hope that's true. Uh, so, but it was a wonderful coincidence on the one hand to, to have that happen with uh, Kemi Badenoch standing up in Parliament last week, to have this article that uh, uh, Dennis wrote, and uh, and then also to be enjoying a wonderful fortieth birthday party uh, with him on on Friday evening. So uh, it's been an interesting few days. Tom, that explains why Dennis Kavanagh followed me on Twitter on Friday night. You must have put in a good word for me, did you? I was. We were doing a little bit of uh, talking about what we nice. what we did respectively, and uh, so yeah, I think uh, I think that would that would definitely explain that. <laughs> Oh, lovely. Well, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think the point about the the collapse of no debate, obviously there have been lots of people chipping away at that for a long, long time. Um, but I think the, the big collapse in it has been um, the public, growing public awareness that this isn't just another kind of uh, innocuous form of social progression, that it's not just... A, a new enlightened way of living that there are these horrible trade-offs that the rights of women and girls suffer and so on um and i think you see this in the opinion polling now whereas there was a time where perhaps the public saw trans rights as just being like gay rights where it's emancipation for a group of people there's no cost to the majority um and as society becomes more enlightened and progressive this is something that we should do and i think that probably five to ten years ago would have been a pretty common view um maybe a, the, the view of the plurality of people uh, was now obviously after the um 
the era of, of censorship and, and silencing of dissent in this issue that I think we can say now we're emerging from, um, mm. that that approach has, has pretty much completely collapsed. And um, people are now, if they're on the trans right side of this, they are now being made to talk about the, the trade-offs implicit uh in in this movement the the, the inescapable trade-offs um if you're if you're campaigning for expansion of trans rights on women and girls and it really brings into into um uh stark contrast i think the two sides of the lgb alliance this new organization that's been set up in the in the light of stonewall going down this 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 sort of extreme trans ideology route on the one hand there's there, there's all the gender critical uh, feminist side of, of the discussion, which we do deal with every day in our casework and um, has been really, really important part of what we do. Uh, but on the other hand is this sort of regression of sexual uh, politics. And that I, I think uh, Dennis Kavanagh says in his article that um, 80 to 90% of children who present at gender clinics say they're same-sex attracted. So so this is the other side of it, which is we got to the point of having civil partnerships, gay marriage, and acceptance of gay and lesbian people. And now then there was even a dark joke uh, said, I think, at one point in the Tavistock that there'll be no gay people left. Now, now that other side of it, that this darker side as well of, of the trans ideology of of trying almost to say, oh, you're not, don't worry, you're not, you're not same-sex attracted. You're just in the wrong body, you, you're, the, you're the wrong gender. And um I think that other side is coming to light as well in a, in a new way, an important way and an important debate. It's less obviously linked to free speech um, in, you know, in the same way that sort of trans policies and, and, and terminology and pronouns is clearly related to free speech, but it is still related to identity politics. And um, so, but I think it is, it's really important that both those sides to the LGB alliance um, are recognized and come into the public debate. But it, on a similar theme to, to the identitarian uh, politics and, and uh, everything we, we talked here about, about the woke ideology, it's been interesting to pick up this week that uh, the book publishing industry has started to experience uh, this, and I suspect it was very, very predictable, this, this, this trend of woke books flopping so woke books are being published in great numbers and they're getting great authors are getting huge advances and then the book's going to press and it's not being bought. And I think we could have predicted this because ideologically driven books that just come from a this is where culture ought to be position and are written for that reason are not going to inspire or engage readers. So examples that came up, and it was reported in the Daily Mail last week, but examples that came up were um, uh, the actor Elliot Page. He wrote a book called Page Boy and received a $3 million advance. It was a book about his journey transitioning. So he received $3 million advance, but it sold just 68,000 copies, according to the Daily Mail. Um, other recent flops and in inverted common, co commas, Carolyn Ferrell's Dear Miss Metropolitan, uh, described by the New York Times as a story of three young girls, black and biracial, who are kidnapped and thrown into the basement of a decaying house in Queens, New York. Uh, and the novel uh, was acquired in a deal that was worth more than a quarter of a million dollars. 
But that book has only sold 3,163 copies since being published in 2021. Obviously, that's quite a precise number, but that was what, what was in the Daily Mail article. Um, so, so we've got these books that are being published and there are advances being paid and they're coming from an identitarian, a woke ideology perspective. And surprise, surprise, the public are not picking up on it, are, are not buying them. And uh, so obviously this raises the question, Ben, if they're not buying them, does that mean that this will stop? Because in the end, at the end of the day, money talks. And if you throw all this money at things that are not being bought, the big question is, will that put an end to this kind of crazy big advances, then the book doesn't get read situation that we seem to be in? Yes, hopefully. But I think there's also a, a worse possibility, um, just to play devil's advocate, in that if you look at all of the all of the trends that uh, to, to do with reading, they seem to be it seems to be in complete decline. Particularly if you look at, for instance, um, male readership of fiction. I mean, that has just completely collapsed in the last ten years. Then mm. you have TikTok and YouTube eating away at attention spans. And just looking around the culture generally, it does not really seem a culture that is particularly inclining people towards sitting down and reading a book of three or four hundred pages. And it seems to me as well, if you, if you speak to uh, say GCSE or A level or IB teachers. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's been quite a lot of reporting on this over the, over the last few years uh, about the trouble of of getting teenagers to sit and read Tess of the Durbervilles or whatever. Which I have to admit, I struggled with as a 16 year old, and that was pre TikTok, uh, pre social media really of any of any kind. Um, but in this in this day and age, the task of getting teenagers to sit down and read the classics is monumentally more difficult than it was when I was a teenager, um, and so. Yeah. What the point I'm driving at here is that if the market is already in danger of of collapsing in like like newspaper circulation, if it goes along that trajectory, um, there is a possibility that the market that remains is has been as captured as the rest of the industry because everybody else has been scared off. I mean, I I don't think I've I've read a novel that's been published mm. in the last fifteen years. I basically read twentieth century or pre twentieth century work, and that's it. So already mm. I've I've checked out of the of the market for for new literature completely um so th there is a danger that, that, that there's this sort of rump publishing market left and then you, you of course you've got self-publishing and so on uh, as an alternative but that that would be my my uh, reasonable worst case scenario i think it's a double whammy isn't it in the sense that the publishing industry starts to shrink certainly the the, the book the the long-form novel the long-form science fiction yeah. novel fiction novel non-fiction novel shrinks and it and as it shrinks it as you say zones in on these types of books that don't work and makes the mistake of thinking that's because people aren't reading because i think that is a mistake i think that if there were a new harry potter if there were a new c.s lewis and narnia and that the, the the fire of a new book a new story um caught on in the classroom in the playground I totally agree that we're not where we were just 10 years ago with the smartphones, with Instagram, with the distractions of TikTok. I think you're absolutely right. And I think we have a real problem with the ability of children to hold their attention for any length of time. But fundamentally, we haven't changed, I think, as a species, obviously. And therefore, if we did have one of the more traditional authors come in with a really good new story... Um, I'm thinking people like you know Philip Pullman and 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 the, the series that he wrote uh, beginning of the century. 
I think that would get people reading again. But if the doors are shut on a shrinking publishing industry, um, then that's a double whammy because it means we still get this woke nonsense on the one hand, but on the other hand, we don't get the opportunity to, to hear a great story from whoever it may be. You know, it may be a white male author or it may not be, but it needs to be a good story. Um, which then leads me on to that other thought I had, Ben, um, which is one of the um, points that gets made is this isn't the time to be publishing more traditional authors. So this is what the sort of woke publishers are saying. Is this the time, yeah. given all that's happened, given BLM, given um, you know the, the, the racialization of society, anti-racism, all of this stuff, this isn't the time to be doing this publishing of, of more traditional books, which raises the question, well, when is the time? Is it going to be 24 months from now? Is it going to be five years from now? Is it going to be 15 years from now? Is that Are we suddenly going to say, okay, that, that moment has passed, that cultural moment has passed, and then the same people in the publishing houses say, okay, doors are open again for the more traditional writers. Now we've had that temporary focus on the more wokey writers. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying this isn't the moment. What they're saying is we never want to see them again, which is a far more extreme position in, in my view. I've, I'm sure I've quoted this on on a previous episode of the podcast, but uh, Charlotte Gill did a, um, <clears throat> a piece for the Telegraph, making a very similar point, where she was looking at the uh, criteria that various literary agencies have, um, and you to pick one at random. Ash Literary describes itself as an agency looking for extraordinary stories for children that reflect and celebrate the diversity of our world. Well, okay. But then it says on its submissions page, <clears throat> we're not interested in stories about white, able-bodied World War II evacuees. Again, okay, fair enough. If that's not what they're interested in, fine. Here's, here's the rub. But we would welcome that story from a disabled LGBTQ plus or BIPOC perspective. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> I let listeners will have immediately noted uh, the acronym BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and Other People of Colour. So they're saying they're not interested in white World War II evacuees, but they are interested in Indigenous ones, which in the British Isles, of course, means white. Um, so that, that American acronym has been imported again. Um, and you see, I think, here the difference between, on the one hand, encouraging people from uh, underrepresented backgrounds to uh if they've got a book in them to write it to try and get it published i think that's laudable i don't i don't have any objection to that at all um i also don't have an objection to uh stories with uh quote-unquote diverse character I, again there, there's no objection to that at all i think the literary objection comes in here where you have literature or indeed television or film that is crafted entirely around identity and nothing else and it's identity to the exclusion of personality identity to the exclusion of plot um identity to the exclusion of characterization and so on um and i think that is the point where i just check out i've got i've got no objection at all to reading stories about or written by people who look different than i do that's that's one of the main attractions of literature that's that's absolutely essential and reasonable um but i've no interest in reading um 21st century Build, which is entirely through the prism of um, disability, LGBTQ+, BIPOC, etc. That That is just, um, well, it's propaganda, isn't it? it it's completely mm. devoid of any literary merit. And that's what the reading public have, have discerned. 
And it's still positioned, Ben, as well, as the counter-narrative, isn't it? It's saying that mm. these stories from the minority groups, the minorities of, of all kinds, um, getting those published, getting those on paper, getting that book in them out, that's the counter-narrative. That's what's not been able to happen thus far. And I just feel that that's not right. It's not people who have an identitarian characteristic or a demographic characteristic. It's not those people who are being sidelined. They're, they're being given all sorts of opportunities, as, as this article originally made, made the point. It's actually that the counter-narrative now, it's reached a point where the traditional um, writer, author, who has no special characteristics, they're white, they're pale, male, and stale, for example, uh, they're the ones who are shut out. Uh, that's the reality. And so the, the, who, is, who is now going to give us the counter-narrative? Because it feels like um, things have moved on and they've moved on pretty quickly. Uh, so um, I, that, the article really did jump out at me as um, in, in some ways. One doesn't want to, one doesn't want to feel too um, hopeful, I suppose, that, as you say, that this means there's a change, um, a, a fundamental change, and that it will mean that, that the publishing houses open up. But it, it, isn't, it is good to see that you know, people are discerning, or readers are discerning, people out there will only buy and will only read what they want to read, uh, which I think is a good thing. I, uh, I read a, a frankly terrifying article in the Times yesterday, I think on Sunday, um, <clears throat> talking about the lack of resilience in the national grid if there were a serious cyber attack or a, a solar flare, space weather, a Carrington event, something that would, would destroy all of our infrastructure. And the best case scenario was that it would, it would take a few days uh, to get everything back up and running, by which time the British Isles would have uh, reverted to abject savagery. Um, and the more realistic worst case scenario is it was saying actually that it, that it could take months or years to completely repair the national grid. So on the plus side, there would be more time for reading and there'd be uh, much less TikTok. So buy candles now. Oh, absolutely, but they wouldn't. But everyone's got Kindles and things like that now, so it requires the physical book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So books and candles. But we were going to move on to our next item as well, uh, I think, uh, which is about um, wokeism still, but about we move across the pond to Harvard, MIT, and Penn University. Uh, ben, do you want to talk about that? Um, so th this was this horrible moment where, uh, which one was it? Which pre which university president was it? Tom, she was being asked a question by a Republican congresswoman in a hearing uh, about if uh, calling That's for the right. genocide of Jews went. It was Harvard, wasn't it? Went against codes of conduct at Harvard. Um, it was Harvard, MIT, and, and Penn, but it's the Penn one Penn. that's resigned since. Right. Okay. Yeah. That was that's um, almost breaking news, isn't it? That's happened just just quite recently. Um, and so we we have I, what struck me about this situation was so there's lots of equivocating in response to this. Um, it struck me as being very similar to some of the discussions we had about the response of the Metropolitan Police uh, in the last couple of months, where suddenly people who had been very lackluster and half-hearted uh, in their support of free speech become freedom of speech absolutists overnight. Um, in response to the uh, mannequin dichotomy of uh, woke grievance being tipped on its head um, and suddenly finding free speech to be uh, a useful tool, not a principle, but a useful tool. 
Um, and I think we we can see that here again, can't we? Um, this this sudden mm. uh, leaning on freedom of speech, where it where it becomes uh, politically convenient. Whereas the FSU, we have defended many people that we we do not personally uh, agree with, or where a majority of our our staff would not agree with them. Um, and that I think is the crucial difference between being consistent in defending freedom of speech versus this tendency that's been revealed by these university presidents. What struck me when I listened to this, um, so the question that uh, it was a New York Republican congresswoman called Elise Stefanik asked all three, all three leaders of Harvard, MIT and Penn, if calling for the genocide of Jews went against the code, their codes of conduct. And they they wriggled and they squirmed and and, and as as I said the the uh, the leader of Penn has since resigned, um, but it was a, it's that old trick of saying well what if you switch the words around, what if they yeah. the question had been calling for the genocide the murder of all black people, would that go against the code of conduct at Harvard, MIT and Penn, and you suddenly realise they wouldn't have hesitated for a moment to say, and yeah. quite rightly, to say, of course not. I'm sorry, of course it does go against the Code of Conduct, and of course we don't accept anyone suggesting that all people of colour should be, should be, you know, there should be a genocide. Yeah. And, and so that obvious switching of the words around, suddenly you put in the word the genocide of Jews, and they squirm and they wriggle, and it really shows up this problem it, it's utterly shocked me how how and people it, can't see that distinction it it shows it, it reveals the tribal basis of thinking about the world through a woke lens where you're not proceeding from a liberal or conservative set of principles about how uh, life should be organized and what the good life means and uh, how society should function you're instead proceeding from a view of the world which uh, has divided groups essentially into goodies and baddies, where Jews are baddies and they are the oppressors, not the oppressed. And so um, you you could have a completely, particularly in America, you could have a completely consistent um, free speech absolutist view that somebody should be able to say literally anything, including calling for genocide, uh, and until they'd actually committed an act of violence, um, that society should tolerate that. That isn't my view. One could argue for that. Um, or you could argue that um, calling for genocide is an act of speech that should be restricted and prohibited, uh, either by law or by university code of conduct or by both. Um, but what I think is completely unsatisfactory is to say that it's uh, tolerable against one group of people and intolerable against another, which is the mess that these presidents seem to have, have got themselves into. Matthew Syed wrote a really powerful article in the Sunday Times. And just to quote a couple of things he said about this situation during that Congress hearing. Um, first of all, he described their response. Uh, so these are these the, 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 the presidents of the institutions, that, how they looked when they were asked the question. Uh, about whether calling for the genocide of Jews went against their codes of conduct. And he describes it as they hesitated, their faces worked, their smiles rigidified, uh, rather like teachers during the Cultural Revolution in China who frantically self-monitor to ensure their remarks don't fall foul of the Red Guards 
They were seeking to avoid transgressing woke ideology. And in fact, more than that, their presidents were revealing dread of their own student bodies. And that that was at heart what those presidents were doing. They were terrified of their own student bodies because, as Matthew goes on to say in the article, what essentially they fall and foul to is appeasement. Appeasement of the loudest, uh, wokiest students and student bodies and student organizations who have this oppressor-oppressed view of the world. They, as leaders, had become or have become absolutely terrified of it. Uh, it's a really good article, well worth well worth reading, and, and, and astonishing how um, one of those, so the, the, the leader of Penn, um, who, who, whose name escapes me right now, Liz McGill, leader of Penn, yeah. she then went onto social media to say, I got that wrong, and now she's had to, to resign. So, you know, slowly people are waking up, but it, it, the damage is done, isn't it? If it's said in a Congress hearing, um, you, you've got to go in clear on what your ethical stance is and not just kind of think, think it through after the event because that's, that's the moment when you're in front of the Congress. Uh, that's the moment to be ready with your answer, to be co- with a coherent answer that makes sense. This is a point that has been made on the left for, um, well, since since tuition fees a decade ago, uh, since, since they were raised, um, is that treating students as customers obviously has all sorts of undesirable repercussions. Um, and you see this with uh, Chinese state penetration of British universities. I think you can see it in the reaction of these uh, presidents of American universities uh, in the article you've just described that they are uh, anticipating backlash from their students and they have to act um, in anticipation of that uh, and in fear of it. Um, <clears throat> and I think certainly with with British universities, there's so much money. The, the whole sector is so dependent on international students and within that particularly Chinese students, uh, which is obviously a vehicle then for um, Chinese state infiltration uh, of British higher education. Um, but you can see the sector's just got itself into this position where it, it can't escape that, where it's, it's leaning on that um, that that source of revenue. Um, and then you you throw into that mix as well the, um, the morally contaminating uh, infiltration of woke politics and this... Uh, this oppressed oppressor uh, matrix for viewing everything. Uh, and you get this horrible mess, which is entirely predictable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's horribly predictable. And, and of course, the, the, the knee-jerk reaction as well is we need to restrict speech more. We need to restrict speech more, uh, which is not right. It's about, going back to what you said, it's about being consistent in the way that you deal with people. Ultimately, it's about avoiding this dealing of people as groups and not as individuals. And in our, I saw that in the newsletter this week, the FSU newsletter, there were some really good practical points that Toby made about how universities get out of this mess that they're in. And obviously, this is we're talking about the United States of America, but this would also apply to our institutions who are in exactly the same sort of boat. Um, but they need to have um, neutrality. And force needs to be prohibited, so no more heckler's votes, no more classroom invasions and intimidations that authorities need to to step down uh, or stamp out intimidation. Um, And disempowering these bureaucrats, these diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucrats who are responsible to no one, 
and they they are the ones who are pushing and peddling this nonsense and it's about disempowering that's going to be that's sort of required it's a bit like kemi in um kemi in the house of commons last week saying stonewall doesn't run the country doesn't set policy the government sets policy you know and that is that's oh my goodness you can't say that well i think these institutions need to start saying that about their diversity equity and inclusion bureaucrats they um they don't run the universities the presidents run the universities um and again this this last point that toby made in the letter was getting away from this unitary thinking unidimensional thinking one view of the truth actually there are multiple views this diversity of thought which sounds like a little thing but it's at root of all of this is there is no diversity of thought around it no room for the public square where things are thrashed out in the way that they used to be uh so i thought some really practical things and of course in the back of that in my mind i was thinking about the higher education freedom of speech act and about mm. um how that is going to be a great way to actually make some of this happen um but it's also a change of attitude fundamentally it's a change of heart and it's a change of attitude i think can i argue against myself tom um I made the point a moment ago. We, we've both made the point that um, among the many sins of these university presidents, um, we can find hypocrisy. And that's probably the first, uh, or at least the second, that, that is detectable. Um, but I think that levelling hypocrisy as a charge against your opponents is a tactic that seldom ever works. Because people, I think, are so capable of rationalising their own conduct Um their own worldview, that I think it's quite rare for somebody to be able uh, to be accused of hypocrisy, to reflect on that charge and think, oh, no, actually, you've got a point, particularly when you're in um, public life um, and in such a high-profile way as this. Um, so I think it's it's one thing to identify the hypocrisy of these university presidents. There obviously is a double standard. Uh, they are obviously relying on freedom of speech selectively that uh, they, they do view different racial groups differently and and it seemed to reveal that they they have a, a very different view about jews than they would against any other minority uh, i think that that's a pretty clear inference from what they've said but i think arguing to uh, the woke that they are hypocritical is not actually very effective i think it's better just to uh, win control of institutions win these institutional battles um and uh reverse the long march I think it takes. I think it's. Um, I think you're right. It puts people on the back foot and the straight back on the front foot. Uh, but it's the same foot when you when you accuse people of hypocrisy. It's that. It's it's a it's a horrible thing. That feeling of being accused of hypocrisy and it doesn't actually defuse the situation or defuse that way of thinking. Um, it seems to me, and it's in stark, sharp focus after these three leaders were in front of the congress it seems to me it's it's about leadership and it's about courage of individuals individual leaders coming in and making the change uh and we we have a dearth of that and we've spoken about it many many times before ben that the these groups this these um committees these dei officers these dei departments the the kowtowing to all of it, the Confucius Institutes that we talked about in the UK. The only way we're going to get this sorted in individual institutions really is through leaders coming in, presidents, masters of colleges, uh, who have, have a clear view 
of what they want their institution to be. And we, it's very, we've seen what, what can go wrong with the masters and the presidents we've had so far. I think we can also be positive and see what could go right if we got the, the courageous leaders in place. So that, I think, is, is the challenge in my, in my view. Shall we move on? We're back to blasphemy, aren't we? I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, didn't we, Ben? That uh, it, this is in. I think we talked about Denmark and Sweden and the fact that they, yeah. they were they were threatening to change the law on texts after the burning of the Quran. Well, Denmark's actually yeah. now gone ahead and changed the law on blasphemy. Sweden hasn't. Sweden Sweden has, has, has held firm. But what struck me on this on this story is that. It took 334 years for Denmark to get rid of its old blasphemy law. I think it did that uh, six years ago. It's taken six years ago, six years for it to bring it back. I mean, yeah. I don't know what you think about that, Ben, but 334 well, years to get rid of it, and it's taken six years to bring it back. It's the same. Um, I've not used profanity. Same rubbish. Um, that's happened in so many European countries. Mm. It happened in Britain. We we got rid of the blasphemy law in uh, England and Wales in 2008. And then you have a very, very, very brief interlude before that is replaced with uh, the Equality Act, with uh, hate crimes, non-crime hate incidents, the whole suite of um, hate legislation that, that, that now exists across uh, the United Kingdom and its constituent countries. Um, and you, you have this really brief interlude where um, blasphemy against the old belief system at the heart of society uh, is decriminalized and then very quickly uh, blasphemy against the new animating idea of society is uh, is prohibited um, and there's something very depressing in that um, and it shows that actually I think that society is not becoming more uh, enlightened it's not making progress it's actually just replacing one set of beliefs um, with another and we i thought we had an interesting conversation tom hopefully listeners agreed uh, last week about this podcast i've been listening to uh, from justin briley about the uh, rise and fall of new atheism and the spiritual vacuum in the west and the various ways in which people are trying to fill that with politics or with gender identity um with the moralizing zeal of black lives matter and and so on um and so y- you can see this this substitution i think uh, measured in the way in which old-fashioned blasphemy laws have been replaced by uh, laws prohibiting uh, hate of various kinds. Um, uh, but on top of that, you also have the re-emergence of what is actually a very traditional blasphemy law in Denmark here with this case, where um, the the ban on burning the Quran is a piece of legislation which if you change one word in it, namely the name of the text in question, you would find yourself with a statute that would have been recognisable uh, for hundreds, indeed thousands of years of European history. Um, so it's it's very it's very depressing yeah. in two ways. Um, and uh, I regret it's probably not the last time we'll yeah. be we'll be talking about a piece of legislation like this. I mean, it it it's positioned as the burning of any text, any religious text, or the ripping or the shredding. And uh, the argument is that it's not a blasphemy law. It's uh, it's a law that's very focused just on the the physical religious texts or or things that are recognised as religious and sacred texts. But it's all just squeamish. It's sneaky, sorry, sneaky language. It's all just um, trying to trying to make you look left while they move <laughs> while they move a huge big wardrobe 
to your right. It's all di- diversionary <laughs> yeah. tactics. And if you go back, I was reading some of what in Denmark they had said uh, a few months ago in October, actually. Um, one of the uh, debates or arguments was absurd. I mean, uh, what was what was the quote? The, the, the determining factor as to whether or not some something falls foul of this law will be if the act is offensive from a broader societal point of view. Well, that's quite nebulous. For and then they go into this sort of scenario: wrapping a religious scripture in bacon will be illegal, but wrapping it in a rainbow flag will not. I don't know what you think about that, Ben. That seems utterly absurd to me that you should even have to have that conversation in Parliament about oh, wrapping it in bacon is that nah, wrapping it in a rainbow flag is not. I mean, this is just angels dancing on a pin. I know for some people the distinction is huge. Obviously, I I, I understand how offensive um, the former would be as opposed to the latter for some people. But when it comes to law around blasphemy and when it comes to re- law around the treatment of physical books then it becomes absurd because for most of a society you know it's my book it's 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 that's my property for me to do as i will with um so i felt felt the whole conversation was absurd. there is a bit of hope here uh, ben yeah i think in parliament the uh, that there is some hope that the opposition have um said we are coming back to revisit this you, you we cannot be in a position where we were so strong after the charlie hebdo cartoons and now we've fallen foul to this because in some sense it was felt we needed to do something because there were some and it wasn't just right-wing people burning the quran there were a lot of ex-muslims in denmark doing that as well we'd come from these terribly repressive yeah. regimes and we're saying this this religion has re- has repressed us and we want to 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 to, to express that um, but they're going to come back and look at it. Although my worry is that after a bit of time has passed, after a new government comes in, you know these laws are sticky. We've talked about that in the past. It is. It will require again a good leader to come in and say, right, we're sweeping that off the statute books. Um, but anyway, let's take the good from that. That there is still a lot of outrage in Parliament in Denmark about what's happened. Well, should we end on that note, Tom? I think we'll have one more episode before Christmas. So goodbye from me. Tom, is there anything you want to add? No, nothing from me other than please join the Free Speech Union if you haven't already. But other than that, we will speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.